0: bottom line is, you know, the brain is built to fall in love. The brain is built to form a deep attachment. The brain is built to team up, to rear our young. Even now, 85% of Americans will marry by their late 40s. They may divorce after a while and, and remarry, but the vast majority of people around the world actually just continue to fall in love.
1: Love Link, your guide to love and sex in all forms.
2: We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is an anthropologist who studies the biology of love and attraction. She has studied underlying personality styles that illuminate mating behaviors. She is the chief scientific advisor to Match.com and has been a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, Rutgers University, and American Museum of Natural History. Her TED Talk on Why We Love has over 9 million views. Welcome, Helen Fisher. We're thrilled to have you today.
0: Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you.
2: So our first question is broad, but based on all of the research that you've done, what have you learned about why we fall in love?
0: Oh, my God. Um, Well, let's see. This is about 40 years of work here. So why do we fall in love? Because millions of years ago, uh, we, we came down out of the... Our ancestors were forced down out of the trees. We began to stand up on two feet instead of four. And women began to have to carry their babies in their arms instead of on their backs. And it's the equivalent of carrying a a, a 20-pound bowling ball around with you for, you know, like four years. And they began to need a partner to help them rear their young. I don't see how... A single female could have walked over these very dangerous grasslands of ancient Africa, collected her food uh, for herself, you know, um, uh, protected herself from enemies. She's no longer in the trees. And um, they began to need a partner to uh, help them rear their babies, to help uh, provide and uh, protect. And indeed, I don't see how an early male, uh, let's say four million years ago, uh, could have uh, protected a whole harem of females and so pair bonding or monogamy um, uh, evolved it became essential for females to have a partner and um, suitable to males so we evolved I think uh, two brain systems uh linked with mating and, and reproduction feelings of intense romantic Love to enable you to focus your mating energy on just one individual at a time and feelings of deep attachment that enabled our early ancestors to uh, stick with this person at least long enough to raise a single child through infancy. So, actually, I think we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction. First is the sex drive. You know, that got our ancestors out looking for a whole range of partners. You know, you can you can sleep with a lot of people that you're not in love with. And then these two other brain systems for romantic love and feelings of attachment. And these evolved, and they evolved because they were necessary for survival. I'm not suggesting, of course, that men and women were necessarily sexually faithful to each other, um, uh, monogamy does not mean fidelity, actually, not in the academic community. Uh, mono means one, and gammy means spouse, one spouse. So, um, we probably evolved what I call a dual human reproductive strategy a tremendous drive to fall in love and form a pair bond and rear our children as a team, but also a tendency. Uh, to philander and to divorce and to uh, remarry, leaving us with uh, a whole lot of conflicting drives. And and therefore, you know, programs like yours that tries to sort all this out.
1: (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about the intense romantic love that often plagues and excites people in the beginning of the relationship? Like, why does that happen from an evolutionary perspective?
0: my colleagues and I um, actually are the first in the world to put people into a brain scanner and try and figure out why people are so anxious when they've just fallen uh, in love, and indeed they are. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, my colleagues and I have put over 100 people actually into a brain scanner using fMRI or functional magnetic resonance imaging, and a good many of them had just fallen madly, madly, intensely and happily in love. And indeed, we found activity in brain regions uh, linked with romantic love, uh, but we also found activity in brain regions linked with anxiety. Uh, And you are anxious in the beginning of a relationship. You know, you think, am I too fat? What did I say that for? What did he say? Uh, You know, uh, you don't really know what's going on. And that just uh, drives up the dopamine system and can create real anxiety. But along with that, um, it creates a lot of other very positive uh, feelings. You know, you really... Suddenly, suddenly, this person becomes the very center of your life. Uh, you feel elation when things are going well. Mood swings into terrible despair when you're going things are going poorly. High energy; you can walk all night and talk till dawn. All kinds of bodily reactions: uh, butterflies in the stomach, weak knees, dry mouth when you're talking to the person. Um, intense uh, uh, sexual uh, feelings of sexual possession. Um, but the main characteristics are intense motivation, you just want to win this person, and um, and also intrusive thinking, you think over and over and over about this person. Before I put these people into the brain scanner, I would ask them, you know, um, uh, what percentage of the day and night do you actually think about this person? And they would say... I never stop thinking about her. I go to bed thinking about him. I wake up in the morning thinking about her. I never stop thinking about this person. It is an obsession. And in fact, um, we've now proven that it's also an addiction. Uh, Brain regions linked with addiction become activated, which in fact is an evolutionary tactic so that our ancestors and us today too could focus our mating energy on just one person at a time, uh, and start the mating process. But along with that, as you're driving up the dopamine system in the brain, you tend to get really anxious. And that's that intensity. Mm.
2: So it makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective, why that intense romantic feeling propels people together. But why doesn't that feeling last? One would think that if it were to last throughout the relationship, that it would Carry over for a lifetime and that people would be romantically drawn to each other forever. And yet that feeling seems to die down.
0: Well, yeah, a lot of people think that it dies down, but actually, um, we did a whole study of people who they came to us. These were people in their 50s and 60s. and um they said i'm still in love with her i'm still in love with him and these people were married an average of 21 years uh the majority of of them majority of them had uh grown children and they said they were still in love not just loving their partner but in love with their partner still after 21 years we didn't know whether to believe them or not i mean most people believe you cannot remain in love So we put them in the machine anyway, and as it turns out, the basic brain regions linked with intense romantic love became just as active among them as among new lovers. Um, The difference was that among new lovers, they also expressed anxiety, and among long-term lovers, there was no more activity in those brain regions, and there was new activity in brain regions linked with uh, calm and and pain suppression. So you really can remain in love, not just loving, in love long-term. So I wonder about that myself. And so I've talked to quite a few people about this and I think what's going on is that early intensity is gone, but they still, they don't talk about divorce. They still can't wait to get home for dinner. Uh, they still um, I can overlook the negative and focus on the positive of their of their partner. And they're crazy about the person. But my guess is that intensity comes and goes. They suddenly go off on a vacation to Europe and, and it's all novel and new and um they they're just as, you know, romantic as a, a new a new formed relationship. Uh and then probably, you know, they get home and they feel deep sense of attachment, but they get to work and see their friends, and I would guess that in a long-term, really happy partnership um, where people really are still in love, that that, that the intensity has declined and that um, it still returns, perhaps on a regular level, this intense feeling of romantic love, but, you know, people wonder why that early stage doesn't last forever, and from a Darwinian perspective... It's not really very adaptive. You you know, when you're madly in love with somebody, you know, you forget to feed the dog, you forget to call your parents, you take a nooner away off of work, you you know, you don't see your friends or family, et cetera, et cetera. That's really not the way to raise children. If you're going to have a, have a long-term uh, happy relationship as parents... You don't want to be, you know, running after each other around the dining room table while the kid is hungry. I mean, you've got other things to do here. So bottom line is, I think that romantic love in the beginning is so intense because it really drives people uh, to be together and make a real commitment to each other. And then in a good relationship, it can remain uh, returning. Relatively regularly, but not all the time, but slows down enough so that everybody can eat, they can sleep, they can get along with their daily life. I just don't think it would be adaptive to have intense feelings of romantic love for 40 years. I think you'd be exhausted.
1: So in the same way that the initial stages of romantic love can lead to really intense feelings, you know, the lust phase, the intensity of rejection that people experience um, can also feel really overwhelming and uh incredibly anxiety-provoking. And I'm curious why why rejection is also such an intense emotion, humans' experience. Yeah, uh, uh,
0: this is uh, very serious because, you know, people stalk. Uh, uh, they slip into kin- When they've been rejected, they can stalk. They can slip into cl- clinical depression. Um, uh, they can uh, kill themselves or they can kill somebody else. So this is a very... You, I had originally thought, gosh, this is very very unadaptive, and why don't we just, you know, after we've been rejected, why don't we just move on? But, you know, you've lost life's greatest prize, which is a mating partner, and um, I've put uh, uh, 17 people with my colleagues uh, into a uh, brain scanner who would just been rejected in love, and we found activity in um, that same brain region linked with intense feelings of romantic love, Uh, we found activity in in the brain region linked with feelings of deep attachment, you know, just because somebody leaves you, you don't feel suddenly unattached. But we also found activity in three brain regions linked with craving, obsession, and addiction, and one brain region linked with physical pain, not only psychological pain, but physical pain. So why would the brain do this? And I think that um, uh, it's because uh, you've lost so much. Um, you've not only perhaps lost some of your children or certainly the dog and the cat, and maybe your home. You've lost your daily uh, habits, your daily cycle of events. Uh, you may have lost uh, friends and, and neighbors and kin. Um, uh, you may have uh, lost money. Uh, uh, you may have lost an awful lot of things, but most important, you've lost a partner who you may have wanted to pass your DNA on to the next generation, and and that's survival, you know, so you've lost big, so why why can't we just move on? There seem to be two stages to this. The first stage of rejection is what they call the protest stage. Um, People just fight to win the person back, Um, They try to seduce. uh, They try to make the other person jealous. um, They try to work it out. uh, um, They do just about anything they can to try to win the person back. And that's adaptive. I mean, if you can change your behavior in ways that win the person back, um, you have regained life's greatest prize, which is a a reproductive partner. So um, it's adaptive to be so driven and so upset about this that you can make changes uh, to win somebody back. And then if that doesn't uh, uh, work... Uh, people uh, go into the second uh, phase of this. After the protest phase, they go into a second phase called resignation. And during that stage, they begin to give up. And uh, it's the very beginning of assembling a storyline of what went wrong here um, uh, and eventually throwing that story out, learning what they can learn, uh, adapting in new ways, and then finally they begin to build a new life. So I think that um the intense power of rejection evolved to first uh you know, fight to win the person back and then with all of that despair you are signaling all the people around you that you're in trouble. It's an honest signal, so you can get get help from others. And uh eventually with the help of others and with time you uh recover and move on. You know, We've all been rejected at some point. Almost nobody gets out of love alive. There was one study of college kids, and they asked a lot of questions to these kids. uh, You know, have you ever dumped somebody who really loved you? And have you ever been dumped by somebody who you really loved? And over 93% said yes to both. They're still in college. I mean, they've got years to go with, with, with mishaps in their love life. So, um, you know, nobody gets out of love alive. One of the most powerful brain systems, the human animal has ever evolved. And of course it evolved so that we fall in love, form a pair bond and stay together at least long enough to raise a single child through infancy.
2: You know, it's so interesting too, because as you're talking, the parallel between love and addiction is so apt. I mean, we we kind of fall in love like there's this high when we lose that high it's like a withdrawal when we get rejected we're so desperate we're willing to sacrifice anything to get that high back and it's just yeah it's just so interesting because we could be replacing this conversation with drugs like heroin or cocaine and it would be a very similar process uh,
0: uh, or some of the behavioral addictions uh, uh gambling uh sex addiction um Attachment addiction. I think that all three of these brain systems can uh, can can be addictions. Sex drive can can turn into an addiction. Uh, uh, feelings of intense romantic love uh, can, can is an addiction. And feelings of deep attachment uh, to somebody can be an addiction. You know, there's some people who are so attached that they can't leave somebody, even though that person is sleeping with everybody else and and beating them up when they come home and drunk on the couch, etc., cetera, et cetera. So they're very, very powerful. Uh, brain systems, uh, feelings of intense romantic love and feelings of of deep attachment. But you know, what's interesting about all of the addictions, and I certainly write articles about love, romantic love as an addiction. But um, unlike heroin addiction or gambling addiction, oddly enough, romantic addiction can actually be a positive addiction rather than a negative addiction um people can uh, uh you know i mean in the beginning of a relationship when somebody really loves you and you really love that person uh and you put aside everything else in order to build a very strong partnership with that person uh with which you will probably raise babies that's a positive addiction uh from a reproductive perspective of course uh so unlike all of the other addictions that uh they appear to be only negative. Uh, I think that at times romantic love can be a positive addiction instead.
1: You know, I've read somewhere that um, sometimes people lose their judgment when they're in love. Is that true? Like your ability to see your partner in an accurate light because you're sort of, you know, you're blinded. You're blinded, yeah. <laughs> B- literally blinded by love, right, mm-hmm. exactly.
0: Yeah, Uh, uh, uh Absolutely, and we know what's going on in the brain. There's whole um, brain regions in the front of the brain, right behind your uh, forehead in the uh, prefrontal cortex, uh, um, linked with decision-making and planning and um, assessing situations and activity in that brain region goes down. So um, you really are looking at life through rose-colored glasses uh, uh, and in fact, even among our long-term people who are madly in love, we found activity in a brain region linked with uh, what I call positive illusions. The ability to overlook the negative and focus on the positive. There's a whole big brain region actually linked with negativity bias, looking at the And activity in that brain region begins to reduce. Uh, it begins to deactivate. So no matter where you are in a relationship um, at the very beginning uh, or way down the road, uh, if you're in a good relationship, it is entirely possible to overlook an awful lot of bad things about somebody and just focus on the good. But certainly in the beginning of a relationship, uh, we clearly see uh, reduced activity in brain, which is linked with decision-making.
2: So in the beginnings of relationships, I mean, if we saw everyone in rose-colored glasses, we would be falling in love with every person that passed us on the street. So how do we choose and how do we discern between one partner over another? What draws us to each other?
0: Yeah, there's, of course, all kinds of cultural uh, reasons. And I think there's also some biological reasons. Uh, 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 Scientists often call it your love map. And as we grow up as children, we build a list of, and it's not always a very conscious list, of what we're looking for in a partner. We grow up in a certain kind of culture. Um, we have certain, you know, eating habits, uh, sleeping habits, uh, are things we find funny, um, people who we find attractive, people who we find interesting because of our experiences. And we begin to build an unconscious list of what we're looking for in a partner. And we carry that in our head as we are, you know, swimming through the mating stream. Um, but, and I like all of that. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of uh, cultural reasons that we, that we fall in love with one person rather than another. Um, and, and psychologists do know that we do tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic background, same general level of intelligence, same general level of good looks. Uh, Same religious and uh, social values. Your childhood certainly, your love map certainly plays a role. But you know, you can walk into a room and everybody is from your background and same level of intelligence and same level of good looks and same social and and uh, uh, economic and uh, reproductive goals, and you don't fall in love with all of them. So I began to think to myself, maybe there's more to this. Maybe. Basic body chemistry plays a role. You know, people will say, well, we have chemistry, or we didn't have chemistry. What do they mean by that, that we have chemistry or didn't? So I began to look um, into the biology of personality. And as it turns out, humanity has, I think more than humanity, all kinds of mammals have evolved four very broad styles of thinking and behaving linked with the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems in the brain. And I started when I started looking at this, I was looking for any trait at all linked with any biological systems. And as you guys know, there's all kinds of biological systems, but most of them, you know, keep the eyes blinking or the heart beating. They're not linked with personality traits. But these four brain systems, the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems, are all each one of them linked with a constellation of personality traits so what i did is i created a questionnaire from match.com the internet dating site uh to see to what degree you express the traits in each one of these four basic biological systems and then i watched on uh Uh, one of Match's dating sites, chemistry.com, who was naturally drawn to whom? Who did they choose to go out on a first date with instead of just talking endlessly over the Internet? And as it turns out, people who are very expressive of the traits linked with the dopamine system tend to go for people like themselves. These people are novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, mentally flexible men and women people who are expressive of the traits in the serotonin system also go for people like themselves. Um, These people tend to be traditional, conventional, follow the rules, respect authority, uh, concrete rather than theoretical thinkers, um, uh, tend to be calm, uh, tend to be, um, they they like schedules and plans and, um, and they tend to be more religious. And, uh, and they go for people like themselves. I think a good example in America would be Mitt Romney and his wife, Anne. Um, the other two styles <laughs> tend to be very um, drawn to their opposite. High testosterone people tend to be drawn to high estrogen people and vice versa. And so a high testosterone person, think of oh, Steve Jobs, uh, uh, would be a very good example, um, Albert Einstein. Uh, These people uh, uh, tend to be analytical, uh, logical, uh, direct, decisive, uh, tough-minded, skeptical, and good at things like math or engineering or computers or mechanics or music. Music is very structural. And they're drawn to their opposite, the high estrogen type. So high estrogen types these people, largely women, uh, tend to be um, um, imaginative, uh, intuitive, very contextual they've got a long they 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 see everything around the issue they're contextual they're holistic they're synthetic thinkers they see way down the road they tend to be um good with people skills uh and verbal skills and they tend to be compassionate and empathetic and emotionally expressive so now i mean what's interesting about my questionnaire and makes it very different from any other it's been taken by 14 million people actually in 40 Countries. Wow. Um, yeah, it's just, that's the beauty of working with big data. Uh, now, unlike a lot of questionnaires that put you in one box or another, that's not the way the brain works. These are all systems. We are all show some of these traits in each one of these systems. Now, so for example, me, I have a new man in my life, and we're both very high dopamine. We're novelty seeking, risk taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic people. In that way. Uh, we are alike and we're drawn to that in each other um uh he's very high testosterone and i'm very high estrogen so in that case also we're very drawn to each other because this these two styles are also drawn to each other so uh in those ways we're very similar so we're different in that he is more high serotonin uh than i am he's he's more inclined to follow the rules and and respect authority uh etc than i am so um and that's sort of cool i I've, i'm getting used to it uh i don't follow the rules uh, unless they make sense to me but he will he will really follow some rules and sort of respect traditions that uh, that are great so i mean i've never met two people who are alike. And I've never had two people take this questionnaire the same way. I've studied this questionnaire over and over and over. Uh, and as it turns out, um, I did one study of 100,000 uh, men and women. And um, no two people took that 56-question questionnaire, my questionnaire, and personality the same way. And I'm not surprised. And I was glad for that, actually, because, you know, I've never met two people who I thought were alike. Uh, and I'm an identical twin, And even my twin sister and I are not exactly alike. No two people are are exactly alike. So um, uh, I think uh, just to sum up here that uh, there's all kinds of cultural things that drive us to one person rather than another, but there's also some biological things too. When people say we have chemistry, it's actually true.
1: So Helen, can I ask you, it sounds like you're in the love-lust phase right now, um, just having started a new relationship. And I'm curious what it's like for you being an expert on love and also in a new relationship.
0: Well, you know, it's um, I'm just like everybody else, you know. I, 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 the, the image I use is that of a piece of chocolate cake. You know, you can be a cook and you can know every single thing about the ingredients of a piece of chocolate cake, but then you sit down and have a that cake and you feel the same ecstasy or joy, uh, that anybody else would. So, you know, even though I know a great deal about love, uh, I still feel exactly the way anybody else would, you know, I mean, you can know a lot about guns, but, uh, but you can feel fear when one's pointed at you, you know? Um, so in the same way, you can know a lot about love, but, but it really, I mean, what I've known and, and of course all my books, um, uh i do use my understanding of love um you know uh it, it, i mean there's certain things that i i try not to do because uh um it won't work now for example you know um uh, there's times when my man wants to be alone and i uh he's a writer he's a well known writer and he needs that time to himself and all and i know that he needs it and, uh, I know that, it, that I'm not going to bother him. Um, I, you know, I'd like to call, I'd like to write, I'd like to drop in, but I don't do it. Um, uh, because, uh, uh, so in other words, there's, there's, there's various things that, that I've learned, some very valuable things on how to conduct a relationship from all of my studies. But in terms of my feelings, they're just like everybody else.
2: Did you ask him to fill out the survey? I did. (laughs) (laughs) You bet. Everybody's my guinea pig. You have a secret weapon.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't so secret. (laughs) I want to actually go back and uh, show you a little bit about what I've learned, tell you a a little bit about what I've learned about the brain and how to use what I've learned about love. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, um, um, it came from our study of long-term lovers. And before we put anybody in a brain scanner, we give them a lot of questionnaires. And one of the questionnaires was on marital satisfaction. These were our long-term lovers. These were people who were married an average of 21 years. And we found three brain regions that became become very active when you're in a long-term, very happy relationship. Now, psychologists will tell you all kinds of things about what makes a happy partnership. You know, active listening, uh, don't threaten divorce, don't express contempt and a whole lot of other things. They're all good. I've got no problems with any of them. But this is what the brain says. This is what I want to add to that uh, discussion. What the brain says, what's happening in the brain when you're happily in love. And it's three brain regions become active. A brain region linked with empathy, a brain region linked with controlling your own stress and your own emotions, And a brain region linked with, as I mentioned, positive illusions, the ability to overlook what you don't like about somebody and focus on what you do. So in my personal life, I really try to practice with my sweetheart now and with others in the past, empathy, controlling my own stress and my own emotions and overlooking the negative. Those are very important. And the other things that I do is I try to keep all three of these basic brain systems alive. Uh, I, you know, keep the sex drive alive by having sex. Uh, that's the way to do it. And it's very good for the body and for the and the mind. And I like having sex with them, so it's not a problem. Um, uh, in terms of romantic love, I try to do novel things together. Novelty, novelty, novelty drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can sustain feelings of intense romantic love. And third, I really, uh, try to keep those feelings of attachment, um, alive. I try to, um, any kind of, um, good touch, uh, drives up the oxytocin system in the brain. So I like to walk down the street holding hands. I like to maybe hold hands a little at dinner. I like to, to, to kiss the person all the time. I, I, Opposed to watching television in two armchairs, I, it'd be so much better if you if you uh, you know uh, sat together on the couch, uh, learn to at least start the night out sleeping in each other's arms. Everything that um, can um, uh, uh, juice up the, the oxytocin system and keep that feeling of attachment alive. So the last thing that I try to do is, I don't try, it's very easy for me, to say very nice things to my partner, um, because it was a wonderful article recently that reported that if you say nice things to somebody, um, that you mean, of course, um, it, it um, reduces their cortisol, the stress hormone, uh, reduces their uh, cholesterol, uh, uh, helps with a heart rate, and boosts the immune system, not only in them, but in you also. So these are the seven things that that, that I do. Um, empathy, controlling my own stress and my own emotions, uh, overlooking the negative, focusing on the positive, having sex absolutely regularly, doing novel things together, staying in physical touch and saying nice things. Those are all things that the brain says. <laughs> are, uh, are uh, produced, you know, when you have a
2: happy... And it, and it sounds, I mean, these are all wonderful pieces of advice, and it also sounds like they're all very interconnected, too. Mm-hmm. Once you're doing one, if you're, if you're taking care of your own stress, if you're using self-care, you're more likely to be more empathic. If you're more empathic, you're more likely to say nice things, and the more you say nice things, they're likely to reciprocate. It just seems like a, ver- a cycle that feeds back into itself.
0: That's a beautiful thing to say. Nobody's ever said that, that, but it's absolutely true. I think you're absolutely on to something. Yep, I agree with you.
1: I also think these seven uh, strategies or seven uh, things to keep in mind when you're uh, in a a relationship, especially in the beginning, um, are really helpful to hold in mind because when you feel some of that anxiety, you can lose sight of uh, what's important to do because maybe there's a fear of rejection or um you know a fear of reaching for the other or saying something positive if if you're not feeling like that's being reciprocated right. immediately um so important important things to hold uh, very mind. you know it's so interesting um, I've,
0: I've, I've got a, a wonderful little handler down at match.com we've been working together for 11 years and you've got a wonderful husband and the three of us went out to dinner recently, and I don't know, we got into talking about positive illusions, and, and her husband says, yeah, yeah, you know, when I get really irritated at things around the house, I go up into the upstairs bathroom, stand in front of the big mirror, put my elbows out, flap them up and down, and say to myself over and over, positive illusions, positive illusions, positive illusions. <laughs> That's great. And, uh, isn't that They have a cute? happy marriage. Yes, they do. They've got a very happy marriage. It's a charming marriage. And a little kid now, too, and everything. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and, and, and the brain will do that. I mean, even though you're not feeling very good about somebody, you know, you put a smile on your face, you say nice things, the person smiles back, you get past it, and, 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 and you, you're building a solid frame. And that's really important. I mean, people in long-term happy marriages, they live longer and they live more healthy lives.
1: Yeah. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about um, online dating since you're an expert in, in online dating. So, to me, online dating can feel so unnatural because the initial point of contact is an electronic device, whether it's the computer or your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've actually talked about it being a, a natu- natural process, more natural than you know meeting somebody at a bar or a coffee shop or, you know, some person off the street, essentially. I don't think it makes any difference where you meet somebody.
0: Uh, I've never heard anybody break up uh, who said, uh, we broke up because we met on the internet, or we broke up because we met in a coffee house. They break up because somebody's terribly rude, somebody's unfaithful, uh, somebody's lazy, uh, uh, somebody's dictatorial. People don't break up because of where they met. It doesn't matter where you met. It just doesn't matter. And as a matter of fact, these really are not dating sites. They're introducing sites. What they're enabling you to do is just meet a host of people. And in this day and age, that's important. And the reason it's important is because we're not marrying the boy we went out with in high school. We're not marrying the girl we met in college. We're not even marrying in our early 20s uh and then if we do marry uh in our late 20s a lot of people divorce in their 30s and they're out there again they're not gonna you know i mean uh, you know after a while you just can't stand in a bar and hope the perfect boy walks in um or for that matter the perfect boy walking into a coffee shop and so basically in our modern world where we travel a great deal um and we're we're marrying a great deal later and we have this long courtship period in our 20s before we wed um what dating services are really doing is just enabling you uh to meet more people but how you meet i don't think makes any difference at all but maybe uh uh, uh but there are some advantages to it and the advantages are that you already know some things about the person guy walks into a bar you don't know whether he's married uh, you don 't know whether he 's looking for love or whether he 's looking for a one night stand. Uh, people on the paid dating sites uh, like match are, uh, are we, I, we do a lot of uh, uh, of uh, questionnaires of, of all, we study them all the time and over ninety percent way over ninety percent are looking for a relationship and that 's a good start meeting people who really are looking for a good relationship. You also know a few things about them, uh, where they live, uh, um, how far they are from you, uh, what their interests are, uh, uh, even where they went to school, uh, um, whether they like pets. I mean, you're not going to know everything. The only real algorithm is your own brain. That's the only real perfect algorithm is your own brain. So myself at match.com and at these other dating sites, we can give you people who you say you're looking for. We can give you the right age, the right background, um, who lives within 20 miles of you or 50 miles of you, whatever, but you've got to get out and meet that person. And that is the big, there's, I mean, there's some great assets to online dating, but the problem is that people don't get out and meet the person, um, uh and, and, and you've got to do that you've got to do the job yourself we can give you a host of people we can introduce you to people of all varieties but you've got to do the selecting and this is one of the reasons that one of the things that i say is um um you know when you first meet somebody you can you, you know so little about them that you can just focus on the fact that you just don't like their shoes and you think there's so many other people out there that you just say, ah, I'll get somebody with a different color of shoes. Um, we get too picky. Um, on the grasslands of Africa, people couldn't be that picky uh, because they didn't run into a million people uh, 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 during the course of their lives. So um, one of the things that I, I say is if you like the person at all on the first date, Get to know them better because all the data seem to show that the more you get to know somebody, the more you like them and the more you think that they are like you. And um, uh, another thing that I say is after you've met nine people, stop and get to know at least one of them better because there seems to be a sweet spot in the brain and after you get you get you feel as if you're so deluged you can't remember who who said what and what they did or who they are or what their name is, and you begin to choose none so uh the sweet spot is between five and nine to make uh, an appropriate decision so uh get out and meet the people uh if you like them at all, go on a second date, get to know them better. And after you've met nine people, stop, at least then stop and get to know one person better.
2: So aside from the filters that you mentioned, like location, age, some of the basics, I mean, how are people selecting from the huge kind of numbers and mass quantities of people that are on on these sites? Aside from, I mean, what just is so apparent, which is just people's looks.
0: Yeah, Um Looks count. You're going to have to look at them for 50 years. (laughs) Looks count. Um, You know, I mean, all through the dating process, there are breaking points and escalation points. And right off the bat, too tall, too short, too fat, too thin, too old, too young, too pink, too green, they're out. And we have all kinds of filters like that. And people grumble about those filters on the internet, but we're using the same filters when you walk into a bar. It's no different. Um, and, um, and then, of course, uh, you know, you find out that he loves to play tennis and so do you and he's a great skier and so do you and he loves to read poetry and so do you and he's traveled all over the world and so have you and uh, you both want children etc you can learn a lot about somebody pretty rapidly um but of course it takes years to really get to know somebody but it's enough to get you through each breaking point so sure first thing you do is you look at them they're in they're out then you email with them or you talk to them in the bar whichever uh, and they say stupid things that you don't like, or they seem to be prejudiced that you don't like, or, or they have the same uh, you know political views that you have, etc. And so you are constantly slowly testing the waters here uh, to see uh, if this person could be a good uh, partner.
1: Do you have any suggestions for how people can optimize their chances of finding a match online? Just do it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> just do it. They are there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it, it, just do it. Just do it. And if you can't do it during the day, get in your pajamas at midnight and do it. Just do it. They are out there. It's very interesting because we do a lot of um, studies, annual studies. One of our studies is called Singles in America. We do not poll the match population. It's a representative sample of Americans based on the U.S. census, and we're working on that right now. And um, it's a national study. Uh, and we ask a lot of questions, but one of the questions we always ask is, where did you meet your last first date? And this past year, uh, 40% of singles said they met that person on some sort of online dating service. Um, whereas only 25% uh, met somebody through a friend, and something like between 6 and 8% uh, met somebody in a bar or... Um, in a religious setting or in the grocery store. So um, it does seem to be be becoming uh, one of the, certainly a primary reason, a a, a primary mechanism for meeting people, which makes a lot of sense because, you know, I mean, as people get older, as I mentioned, they're not gonna gonna stand in a bar all night and hope the perfect boy walks in or girl. Uh, uh, And so these dating sites are introducing sites that enable you to to meet a lot of people, but you've got to do the work. And it is work. Anybody who says it isn't work is, I don't know, they don't come from my perspective, that's for sure, because it is. You've got to get on the site. You've got to work the site. You've got to respond, and you've got to make dates, and you've got to get out and meet the person. And that takes time. It takes energy. Um, The one thing I always say is don't go out on a first date to a long uh, dinner. Uh, Do it in the afternoon. Uh, at a coffee house or in the park or at a museum or some, and and make a definite end to it make it 20 minutes make it 40 minutes even if you're crazy about the person don't um you know keep it short so that you don't burn yourself out uh to, well i'll take that back if you're really crazy about somebody of course hang in there with it i mean you know you don't want to throw away a chance at love
2: or you could frame it Frame it as a 20-minute date with the possibility of extending that time if things go well. Exactly.
0: And in fact, you can even look at your email thing and say, oh my goodness, I've got a little bit more time. Do you want to go take a walk or, you know, I don't know. Uh, You know, love finds a way (laughs) Uh, if two people fall for each other right off the bat. And by the way, the vast majority of people don't even expect to feel love at first sight. Uh, American singles... Uh, Over 50% of, of men have fallen in love at first sight. Um, about 40% of women have had the experience of falling in love at first sight, but most singles, and I really like this data, uh, do not expect to fall in love at first meeting or even the second meeting. I like that because, you know, you can fall in love with somebody at any time in a relationship. Uh, in fact, with me, I had a, a friend who I, he was just a friend. I just thought he was a pest. I just, he just, <laughs> just kept on trying and trying and trying. <laughs> And about two years into this of hanging around with them now and then, I fell in love with them,
1: and I is remained this, in is love this who with you're them with now? About,
0: no that's somebody, no, somebody else. Uh, okay. Yeah, I fell in love with them and remained in love with them for about eighteen years, and we wow. broke up about four—yeah, about four years ago. So, don't give up on love. You know, Cupid's got ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: So, do you find that? Um, I mean, in your Research and, and, um, and, you know, asking questions to the general public about their dating experiences. I'm wondering this courtship phase seems to have changed because with online dating, people are dating multiple people at the same time and there are a lot, there's lots of choice and it can really feel, feel like hard work and it can take time and maybe longer than it used to um, before online dating.
0: You've really got something uh, there. And it's my newest uh, hypothesis, and it's, I call it slow love. I think it's a great step forward. Uh, you know, marriage used to be the beginning of a relationship. Now it's the finale. What we're really seeing is an extension of what I call the pre-commitment stage, or what they call, or I call it commitment light, L-I-T-E, commitment light. And what we're seeing is this long extended pre-commitment stage so you might go to bed with the person right off the bat you know that's probably like a sex interview or uh (laughs) etc but um you know but i mean it moves from like a one-night stand you know into friends with benefits you don't tell your parents and other people um and then that begins to work out more and so you begin to go out socially together uh, maybe even in a group and then uh, you begin to move in and, uh, spend more time living, uh, together. Uh, uh, and now these days, you know, it's like living, it's, it's like being together, living apart. They're keeping their, the younger people are keeping their own part, you know, their own houses and not even moving in completely together. So there's this very long, slow pre-commitment stage, uh, to relationships and, um, I really like that because it gives you time to get to know somebody and thus bad relationships can end before you tie the knot and before you raise children. And because of that, I began to think, wow, this whole new thing about slow love, uh, this long extended pre-commitment stage, maybe that gives people enough time to get rid of bad relationships in order to make better ones. Uh, So maybe by the time you walk down the aisle, you know who you got, you know you want who you got, and you think you can keep who you've got. And so I thought, well, maybe we're going to see an, a coming era of more happy long-term relationships because they've they've shopped around. They know what they got. They know they want what they've got. So I did a study with Match of um, 1,100 married people. Now, not on Match, of course, you're married people. And I asked the, you know... I asked a lot of questions, but one of my questions was, would you remarry the person that you're currently married to? And 81% said yes. Mm -hmm. So it's entirely possible with this long, long pre-commitment stage and slow love, I mean, fast sex, definitely, but slow love and slow attachment, I think we might be moving towards happier long-term marriages.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if the divorce rate um goes down over time. Yeah, it's been stable
0: for um quite a while now. It it peaked in 1981. Uh it's not a 50% divorce rate that just gets just bandied about from one generation to the next. It's some it, it's it's generally it's between the, the 43 and 46%. It's still high. Uh and uh I mean, I'm not for divorce, but if it's a perfectly horrible relationship, it's better to divorce. And in fact, I saw some new data that, um, you know, Americans have always felt, well, stay together for the children, no matter what. That's changing. Uh, 67% of uh, when they did a poll of of just regular Americans, uh, they believed, Americans are coming to believe that uh, it's probably worse for children to remain in a really bad uh, uh, marriage and so even that is beginning to materialize into something that is, uh, uh could be better. Get, we get rid of the bad marriages. Both partners can go on to make smarter, better marriages and uh, probably uh, a healthier environment for their young.
2: So I certainly hope you're right that the slow dating movement leads to kind of more satisfying long-term relationships, But just to play devil's advocate, I'm wondering if if it's possible that this slow dating movement may also lead to kind of feelings of uncommitment and that actually more people just end up perpetually dating for their lifetime and maybe going through just serial relationships and never quite wanting to settle down.
0: I think there's always been people like that. But the bottom line is, you know, the brain is built to fall in love the brain is built to form a deep attachment the brain is built to team up to rear our young even now 85 percent of americans will marry by their late 40s they may divorce after a while and and remarry but the vast majority of people around the world actually just continue uh to fall in love and form pair bonds i recently heard it was very interesting in in the nordic countries where it's been long popular to just live with somebody and not marry that the newest swing is back to marrying them. Uh, marriage is, is like a bamboo tree. It just sways in the wind. It, you know, beliefs come and beliefs go and, and, and trends come and trends go and it just snaps back up. Uh, we are a pair bonding animal and whether we marry the person or whether we move in and form a a long term relationship, whatever you want to call it, it will continue. It's very interesting, this whole new discussion of uh, polyamory and everybody's talking about polyamory, which is many loves and being transparent. Actually, I admire these people for being transparent uh, about it, but the vast majority of them are young. They're not ready to settle down. They're putting career above family as opposed to family above career for women, and they're trying everything out. But the vast majority of these people will settle down in a in a uh, in a pair bond, uh, a, most likely a faithful, sexually faithful relationship. When I asked people in the Singles in America study how they felt about polyamory, sixty-seven percent of them. 67%, a little over 65%, um, said that they approved of it. They had no problem with polyamory. And then when I asked how many of you do- have done it, and only six percent had. And in fact, um, we wrote an academic paper on it, uh, Justin Garcia at the Kinsey Institute, myself and several others. And uh, we're not the first to find that. Uh, uh, 10, 15 years ago, they were also saying that about 5.5% of, of um uh, singles had, had, had some polyamory, tried polyamory. So that's, you know, the press is always talking about all these other ways of forming uh, relationships and having sex, and they're all there. But, you know, when the chips are down, the human brain wins. And we fall in love and form a pair bond with somebody. Not to suggest we're always sexually faithful to them but we form pair bonds. We're a pair bonded animal.
1: So you've done so much interesting research on love and romance, and it's, you know, it's been fascinating listening to you now. I'm curious, uh, what, what are you interested in now, and what's next for you? I'm really
0: um, addicted to this personality material. Uh, I think that um, uh, it can be very useful in understanding personality style, not only in love but also in business. So I'm making more and more business speeches about uh, innovation, uh, you know, not all, not everybody innovates in the same way. Uh, different personality styles are gonna have different forms of innovation. They're gonna tackle different kinds of innovation and they're gonna to proceed to innovate differently. Different people are gonna be different kinds of leaders uh, uh, because they have different personality styles. Uh, and so I've created a new company called NeuroColor and it's a company in which we I created a second-generation uh, questionnaire uh, to, to measure these per, four broad personality styles. And um, I'm also interested in trying to tell the world about extroversion and introversion. I don't believe anybody, anybody measures that correctly, and I'll be happy to tell you why. Um, uh, I, I, I want to get farther into the biology of personality. I mean, you know... Uh, a good uh, 40 to 60% of who you are is cultural, has a lot to do with how you grow up. And you guys are going to be in the business of understanding people's cultural background and, and um, you know, the problems that their childhood uh, produced for them. But there's a second half of personality called your biology. And a good 40 to 60% of who you are is, is biologically based And one thing that I would really like people to understand is not all problems in a relationship are because of your childhood. Uh, some people are naturally stubborn. Some people are naturally risk takers. Some people are naturally penny pinchers. Some people are naturally skeptical. And instead of blaming everything on your parents, which I'm getting sick of, uh, uh, (laughs) <laughs> I know I'm saying this, I'm not speaking to the choir here, I'm speaking to the to people, but you're the young generation and maybe your group can come to see that it's not just your childhood that makes for personality, but there's a great deal of biology and the more we understand uh, people's uh, basic personality, the more we can reach them. Uh, I just had an article in the Harvard Business Review and um in the article i ended up saying you know when you understand the brain you can reach anyone and i believe that now for example my new man he's higher on the serotonin system we we are absolutely compatible in the dopamine system and the estrogen and testosterone systems we just it just works beautifully he's higher on the serotonin system than i am so one time recently we were going to the movies and I said to him, I said, sweetie, uh, do you have a bottle of water in your backpack? And he said, yeah. I said, oh, great. We can drink it in the movies. And he said, no, we can't. You can't drink, bring food and drink into a movie house. You've got to buy it at the concession stand. Holy smokes. I said to myself, what's going on? You know, but um, he wasn't, it, it wasn't about me. It was about who he is. It wasn't about his childhood. It's who he's higher on the serotonin system. He's going to follow those rules. And rather than have a royal battle over it and say, this is stupid, you know, let's go drink the water. Um, I recognize that's part of who he is. And once you recognize that people in some respects, now in some respects, people can change dramatically, but in some, they're not going to change. You got to find a workaround, you got to operate under positive illusions, or you got to be begin to respect that person for who they really are. And I just want to bring to modern psychology um, a fresh look at personality, a fresh look at um, um, uh, uh, relationships, uh, bringing in the second half, introducing uh, the second aspect of a partnership, which is the biology of who you are.
2: Is there anything else, is there any other piece of advice that you think would be helpful for our listeners out there on love and relationships or on online dating? Just
0: get out there. If you're single, you got nobody to be mad at but yourself. You've got to get out there. He is out there. She is out there. But you have to find her. They cannot find you if you're sitting at home watching TV. You've got to get onto the internet or go out and meet new people. Uh, it's all possible. That's for singles. For married people, well, you know, I'd love it if they read my books. I'd love it if they read more about personality uh, so that they could learn more about themselves and learn a lot deal, a lot about their partner that uh, is going unused almost.
2: That's great advice. Which book are you referring to?
0: Well, uh, my most recent book is uh, Anatomy of Love, second edition. That came out uh, this past year. Why We Love is another book. And... uh why Him, Why Her, uh, talks more about personality styles. Just go to my website, HelenFisher.com, and you'll find them all.
1: And we'll put the links up on our website, too, so our listeners can find your books.
0: Oh, great. And the other thing, the, the other website is uh, www.TheAnatomyOfLove.com. And in that, I do a lot of videos uh, with my brain scanning partner and explain a lot of this stuff also.
1: Thank you so much for talking to us today, Helen. This has been illuminating and uh, really helpful on a personal level, too.
2: (laughs) Hope you enjoyed the podcast and thanks for listening. We also want to thank Point in Passing for their original music for a podcast and website design. Be sure to subscribe to Lovelink on iTunes and leave us a review. See you next time. Mm